So today we're continuing with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. We have been on element five for a while. This is the 40th message in the overall series. So 39 weeks makes three quarters of a year. I'm, I'm thinking that we're going to end up at about a year and a half by the time we finish this series. Uh, we've been on element five, which... Uh, is all about an introduction to Christology, meditations on who Jesus is. Um, obviously, if you want to supplement element five, you'd do well to read over and over again all four Gospels. And so, um, on the first uh, element zero, we talked a little bit about why uh, you need to understand the concept of pre-evangelism. And uh, most people who are Christians in our culture have been pre-evangelized, but not necessarily actually evangelized to the biblical Christian gospel. So you have a lot of people who maybe have even prayed a sinner's prayer, but as we're going to look at today, uh, maybe they're not really converted or born again. And, and uh, true and false conversion has been a major theme of study in the early church among the ancient church fathers, among the reformers, among the Puritans. And you still see books on it today. Although, um, and even some of the early revivalists that kind of brought about the modern, more Armenian kind of gospel and so forth, like Charles Finney has a book on true and false conversion. So, um, you know, what we have today, what we looked at in, Elements one through four is we looked at the, the big gap between God and man that is minimized today both by the secular world with its uh, humanistic anthropologies and psychologies and so forth, looking at man as basically good, not seeing man as created in the image of God, not, uh, we, we, uh, but also in the church, many people have pointed out that we have less than a biblical God. Uh, one of the reasons you should always, uh, you should take our systematic theology class, you should read a couple good books on the attributes of God, is most of us have less than God in our heart and mind about who God is, someone less than he is. And, uh, and, and also, we often have a psychology of man that doesn't see sin as utterly sinful. And we see ourselves as basically pretty good people who just need a little churching up or a little uh, self-help. That's why self-help books are the number one selling books in Christian bookstores. Basically, by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of philosophy, uh, that's what makes certain TV preachers uh, so, so popular, is because um, the gospel is an offense to all that. The gospel says you cannot save yourself. You cannot help yourself. Your sin is utterly depraved. You have nothing in your life that would commend you to God. God has to draw you. No one can come unless the Father draws him. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And if you're in Christ, you there's and truly in Christ, there's no basis for any pride of the flesh at all. You may have been what the world calls a goody two-shoes, or you may have been what the world looks at as a notorious sinner. But you, what, whichever one you were, you did it all for the wrong reasons until God drew you to himself. And so uh, 
that was kind of uh, elements zero through four. Uh, four, of course, is the historical narrative of Israel, which is totally not talked about today, but there are no presentations of the gospel in the scriptures that don't include the historical narrative of Israel. And that's so huge because without it, we end up with a radically individualistic gospel that's all about your justification instead of being justified to the, to the cosmic purposes of God which he brings about through having a people for his own possession. And there, therefore, is no salvation apart from being in the center of God's will for who he wants you to be in the center of God's will with. And it's not like find a church of your choice, like find a church that you feel comfortable with. Can you imagine Jesus calling someone to follow him and he'd make them comfortable? Uh, you know, uh, th that's what we preach in America today. Find a church of your choice. No, find the church of God's choice. And uh, don't find one that makes you comfortable. Find one that's going to challenge you to enter into the heart and will of God. All right, so st starting with element five, we've, we're now on, this is the 20th message. For the first eight messages, we looked at uh, the normal things that you would take in any theology class about Christology, about who is Christ. We looked at the I am statements, the deity of Christ, the... This, uh, the virgin birth, etc. In the last uh, 11 or so messages, we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus, and especially the last few weeks, we've been looking at him as God's covenant, uh, prophetic prosecutor of God's covenant lawsuit, and we looked especially at the parables in Matthew as not being just nice stories for Sunday school today, uh, but as being God's case against Israel, saying, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to a nation producing the fruit of it. Now, draw your attention to Roman numeral 4. I want to try to finish this section 5 by the time I get to 5Z, and <laughs> I'm running out of time. So I am going to skip some things that would be well worth your thinking about. So I've given you some hints. If you want to spend some time thinking about these things, you might want to look at the Last Supper and especially compare John's view of the Last Supper in John 13 through 16 to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's versions, which I've given you the references for. Now, in all four Gospels, Gethsemane comes right after the Last Supper, as it did actually did that night. And so uh, you might, might want to compare Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. If you've been around the Alliance Renewal Churches uh, much time, you know that those are Ray Nethery's favorite verses and a big emphasis uh, of the, the Alliance Renewal Churches. Uh, Father, make them one as uh, we are one and so forth. And then you might want to compare that to the accounts of Gethsemane in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which I've given you the references there in Roman numeral 4b. And then the 4C, I didn't have space to give you the references, but they're right after Gethsemane, and that is the trial of Jesus. Um, I would strongly encourage you to pick up a little book called Who Moved the Stone? And it was written by a guy named Frank Morrison. It was first published in 1930. He died in 1950. He was born in the late 1800s. And he was a British journalist who did, some of you are probably familiar with like Lee Strobel, and there's other cases uh, of people like Derek Prince who set out to prove that Christianity was nonsense and became a Christian in their process. And he's another case like that. He was a British journalist 
that decided to, to prove once and for all that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen and was compelled to become a Christian as he examined the evidence. Because uh, people don't reject Christ for the lack of evidence that he rose from the dead. That's why Jesus said in Luke 16, he says, if uh, they have Moses and the prophets, if they, don't, if they won't come to God because of Moses and the prophets, neither will they come if someone's raised from the dead. We think if we can just prove the resurrection that everyone's going to fall down and repent. People didn't repent at the miracles of Christ. People didn't repent at seeing Christ. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared to more than over 500 people between the time of his resurrection and his ascension and glorification, and only 120 of them were, were impressed enough to actually start obeying him and do what he said to wait in Jerusalem until he poured out the Holy Spirit. That means 380 people who still weren't impressed after they saw Jesus enough uh, for risen from the dead to become full disciples. Wow. So uh, the truth is... Uh, the resurrection is a uh, very important thing, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at a little bit of that today. Uh, we, we would be still dead in our sins. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing worth doing in this Christian life if there's no true resurrection. However, uh, just because people see the resurrection for what it is um, doesn't mean they'll repent. In the book, Who Moved the Stone?, he actually focuses mostly on the trial of Jesus after in, in the fact that uh, the Sanhedrin, in the name of the, who are mostly Sadducees, but some Pharisees on the Sanhedrin, in the name of following the law of Moses, broke all the laws, every single law that, that the Bible gives about conducting biblical trials, they broke them all in the trial of Jesus. <laughs> and so it was a sham trial with a sham conviction. Um, and uh, it was total hypocrisy of the, of the highest order. And there was no case against Jesus. So, uh, and finally, they just decided that basically they were going to reject the fact that he is saying, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man. He's calling himself the Messiah. He is the very Son of God. He is God himself in human flesh, and they're going to reject him. That's as simple as that. And therefore, reject God himself and God's purposes for their life. So, if you want to look into those things further, that's all I'm going to give you on that is some, some hints as to how you could look at those things further. They'd be well worth your time. The next two weeks, we are going to look at a concept called the atonement. How we're made uh, one with Christ despite the fact that the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness is immeasurable. And we're going to look at how Christ himself made that possible because he is the one man, the one God, uh, God and man, perfectly united in one being uh, who died for our sins and our sin, as we shall see, there's a little difference there. Now, next week we're going to actually look at various theories or theologies of the atonement, like the substitution theory and the uh, penal substitution theory and so forth. Um, we're going to see that <clears throat> a lot of people constantly want to systemize theology to the level that they want to make everything always an either-or proposition. 
many things in God are a both and proposition, and we need to 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 uh, hold truth in tension. And we're going to see that several of the penal substitution, so, uh, several of the atonement theories have much to give us and much to offer. However, what I want to stress today, we're going to go back and look at an old message that I've done many times called Eight Essential Elements, or Eight Essential Exchanges at the Cross. Eight exchanges that, that, that we have to make to enter through the cross into Christ. But what I want to emphasize today is that we have, if you go back to, to um, number 5L in this series, we looked at the ministry of Jesus as being more than forgiveness. And what, I'm always, what you're always encountering today, and if you're going to become effective as, as a member of the leadership team, as someone who leads people to Christ, who disciples people, you're really going to have to know this in your heart, and this is going to have to be part of your thinking all the time. This can't be something that you just say, oh, can I remember this once in a while? You really have to understand this. Today's average Christian has been told, if I've prayed a sinner's prayer and asked for forgiveness, I am a Christian. And salvation is simply just a matter of forgiveness. And therefore, you have thousands of people who aren't, uh, who say, I'm a Christian, and I'm eternally secure in that. Uh, but I have no desire to make Jesus my Lord. I have no desire to follow him. I have no desire to take up my cross. I have no desire to be a part of a church or a covenant people. I have never had anyone disciple me. I've never had anything that actually crosses my will and what I want to do. I am the God of my life. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians in America are living there in their heart because of this reduced gospel. And, and I believe, as we're going to see today, in the doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, but not in how it's taught today called eternal security from man's perspective that I can redefine the gospel how I want, ask for forgiveness, have no intention to actually repent of my sins, to become a follower of Christ, that I can be my own God, thumbing my nose at the will of God for my life, continuing to live in my you know, lack of seeking God, in my lack of loving God, in my lack of loving his body and his church, in my lack of conforming my life in obedience to his commandments, I can continue my sexual sin, my alcoholism, my procrastination, my laziness in my school schoolwork. I can continue to just be a total loser and not become anything that God intended me to become, and, and, and I'm assured of salvation. And I have to say, you've got to begin to biblically question whether that's a conversion at all. True and false conversion is a major theme of the New Testament. It was a major theme of the apostles. It was a major theme of the church fathers of the first seven centuries. It's a major theme of the Reformation, the Puritans, and on so forth. Uh, the, not everyone is in Christ who says they are in Christ. And lovingly, Helping them to see that is their only hope. And because of today's reduced gospel, reducing it to only a matter of cheap forgiveness without any exchange actually being made of lives, the church 
which has actually supported that message by and large. The church is called in the church in the scriptures the pillar and support of the truth. And ironically, the modern church has become the foundation of deception for millions and millions of people that are in the valley of decision. That's why Joel calls the people of God to gather the elders, gather the people, even the babes, cry out to God fast, cry out to God for visitation, for an outpouring of his Holy Spirit, to pour out his spirit on all flesh so that your sons and daughters may prophesy and so forth. And he talks about how there's multitudes, multitudes, the Greek Septuagint, myriads of myriads, ten thousands of ten thousands, which means billions in the valley of decision. And many, many, many churchgoers today, many of you grew up in churches. You know, uh, I'll pick on Logan a little bit. Logan had a time where all the Christians he'd known in a particular movement or way of doing things kind of, you know, basically became obvious there was terrible fruit there. Because what, what happens in many cases today is the churchgoers are at best, because of the reduced gospel that we have, at best pre-evangelized and not necessarily converted. And this, that's why this message, I hope you'll understand it, it's really important. You have to trade your life for Christ. It's not just a matter of forgiveness. And you've got to be able to say, once I was blind, now I see. Once I lived on the throne of my own heart, now my, Christ is my Lord. Once I had my plans and my ambitions for marriage, vocation, ministry, whatever, now I ask, what would you have me to do? If it's possible, take this cup from me, but whatever thou wills, that's what I'll do. Even to the point of death. Has there become a fundamental change in your heart where you want his agenda, not yours, in the big areas of life? God has given us certain big desires, like the desire for marriage and so forth, uh, the desire for vocational calling and ministry calling, uh, the desire for relationships and, and, and so forth. And uh, have you really submitted those to God? Are you really saying, I want to do your will, O oh God? So let's look at the eight exchanges as quick as we can, because I really want to focus on that point about how to, to look at the eight exchanges and make sure you've done them. An overview of the eight exchanges, let's go to Roman number 5a there. 1 Peter 3.18 states it this way, For Christ also died for our sins once and for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, First, uh, Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, that is, he had never had experienced any sin, to become sin on our behalf. He's, he's actually uh, re-quoting Isaiah 53, 6 and 10 there. To be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in, in him. Isaiah 53, 6 and 10, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 
But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Now, as we get to Roman, the number two here, five, two, notice the second one is sins. And you're like, what's the difference? Sin and sins are very different in the Bible. Sins are the individual acts, you might call them the leaves and the fruit of the tree that the root in the trunk of are sin. And sin is that desire in all of us to be God, to determine for ourselves good from evil. That's what the temptation in the Garden of Eden was. They were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent said, you should go ahead and eat from it so that you can become God yourself, determining for yourself good from evil. Sin is when you're still saying, well, I'm this way. And, well, and, you, and you're, just, you're basically saying that I'm not like Christ, and you're just okay with that. <laughs> and uh, I'm rebellious, you know, or I'm shallow, you know, or I'm prideful, you know, or I'm just do it my way, you know. That's the, in the essence of sin. And the axe has got to be laid to the root of that. So s- notice the point at the top of the re- sins, iniquities. Notice that uh, in the verses on sin, the sin is singular and iniquity is singular. Notice on the verses on sins, sins is plural and transgressions and iniquities are plural. And this is what's important. You cannot have forgiveness of sins without wanting to be delivered from sin. Now, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about sanctification, might as well right now, and maturation. It doesn't mean that when you've received Christ, you're entirely sanctified and you never sin again. I haven't met that person yet. <laughs> but you will have a gr- great desire to be that person although you will never be that person this side of heaven. But you will never make peace with anything less. You will always, 1 John 3, 3 says that when we see him, when we go to be with Jesus, we'll we'll see him as he is. And anyone who has that hope, if that's actually what's inside you, if you've actually been born again to a new and living hope, as Peter says, anyone who has that hope purifies himself as he is pure. You will have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you do not have that, You are not saved. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't fall short every day. That's why you were actually taught uh, when you were a little kid to pray the, you know, prayer on your knees. Now I lay me down to rest. You know, it's good to start the day asking for grace, draw near the throne of grace to find time of help or find help in time of need. It's good to end the day confessing our sins. Teach your kids, kneel at their bed and say, Lord, I've fallen short today. Tomorrow's a new day, and today is the day of salvation. Let me walk with you in grace and power. But forgive me for all the ways I fell short today. And get specific about it. You know, I was a little nasty with my wife, or gee, I was a little lazy on my homework. Or, uh, whatever he's called you to do that day, Confess where you've fallen short, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. Many, many, many a Christian is living in a place where they've been hardened by deceitfulness of sins and they've made peace with various sins. You should be upset about various sins. 
This doesn't mean you doubt God's love for you. It doesn't mean you doubt his grace. It means you doubt yourself and you put all glory in the hands of Christ and you desire to live in the resurrection power of our Lord and Savior by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's why getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and other things that will, other spiritual disciplines that will get you fit, keep you filled with the nearness of God are so important. Because without being taking a new drink of Christ every day, every hour, there's, you know, there's a song that we've sung a few times, an old classic, I need thee every hour. That's, so, some of the verses on sins are there. Uh, you can read them for yourself. Now, let's talk a little bit, now that we've talked about sin and sins, let's talk a little bit about the concept of, the, of exchange. Here's some definitions of exchange. Uh, it can be used as a verb, which means to substitute one thing for another, or as a noun, the act of substituting one thing for another. It means to give up something for something else. Part with for uh, some equivalent change for another. To replace with an equivalent or something else, like returning uh, merchandise, like I didn't like the blue sweater, so I took it back and got the gray sweater. It means a total trade. To give and receive reciprocally, interchange, to exchange blows in, in a fight or to exchange gifts in, you know, in giving in Christmas. Do you ever notice that if, when you invite someone over for Christmas, if you get them a gift and they don't get you a gift, they always feel a little funny? I actually encourage you not to. Like someone gives me a gift and I didn't get them a gift, I'm like, well, it's humbling. Or if you give them a gift and they didn't give you one back, that's okay too, right? You got to get, because that's really, I mean, can you give anything back to Christ? The only thing you can give him is your life. You know, there's an old sto story that a missionary was trying to leave this uh, um, polytheistic pagan tribe to Christ, and the chief of the tribe came and said, I'll give my horse to Christ. And the missionary said, the Lord doesn't want your horse. Go back. So he came back and he brought his uh, domicile, his, his portable tent or whatever, and I'll give my house to Christ. God doesn't want your house. Then he brought his wife and kids, and he said, no, God doesn't want your wife or kids. And so he finally came back and said, well, the chief, I've given you everything I have. I, I, chief gives chief to God. And he goes, that's it. That's what he wanted. That, you have to trade it all in. If you really haven't, you really got to kind of spend time with God and every day and discern, have I really made this trade? Is it I'm still living? Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. Does Terry Pellegrino still live here anymore? Does Greg Weiss still live here anymore? Does Deanna Brown still live here anymore? If the answer is yes, you really got to get back to the foundation of the root of Christ. That's what your baptism meant. The, you fill in your name. So-and-so doesn't live here anymore. I belong to God. That's why the Bible says glorify God. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify, glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You don't, like, have you really had a change of heart where I don't belong to me? You can tell by practical things every day. Who's really running this show? You'll see it in the fruit. 
is my passion really to please the Lord? Uh, to part or return something equivalently, said that one, some, something that's given or receives in substitution for something else, a fair exchange. Uh, the method or system by which debts or credits in different places are settled uh, by means of bills of exchange representing money values, the discharge of obligation, the transfer of credits, etc. Um, this is huge. There is this gospel that says, I can ask for forgiveness, but I'm not going to trade my life for his life, is a false gospel, and millions are deceived by it. Millions. He came to set the captives free because freedom is belonging to Christ and loving Christ and enjoying Christ forever. You were made for that. That is your density. Your, your density. That's your density. All right, let's move over to the back page. Alienation from God. Amos 3.3 3 says, can two walk together unless they're agreed? Some translations say unless they've made a covenant. Now, everyone who's been married knows or has kids knows that fights happen when there's a disagreement of wills, right? Every parent's like, boy, that's a strong-willed one. Because <laughs> every kid is. They learn that concept of mind so easily. But sharing, that's a tougher one, <laughs> right? Mine, mine, mine. There's my favorite Warner Brothers cartoon of all time is this one where Daffy Duck is uh, in Bugs Bunny or in this thing, and Daffy Duck is like, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And then they go through this, and at the end, he pops his head back up as it's, you know, how it closes at the end of Warner Brothers cartoons. And he pops back up and goes, it's mine, mine, mine. <laughs> yeah. Uh you should check it out sometime. I don't know how to find it. There's probably on Hulu or something you can find old cartoons, I would guess. Um, I haven't seen that one in quite a few years, but I do remember it was a good one. Psalm 22.1, uh, quoted by Jesus in Matthew 27.46 and Mark 15.34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Now, um, the whole, whenever... The Bible quotes one verse, it's saying, look at the context. When it quotes the first verse of something, it's saying, look at the whole chapter. So Jesus is basically telling us on the cross, Psalm 22 is what's happening to me right now. So read all of Psalm 22. But what had to happen is, is simply this. Sin, Isaiah 59.2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short, that he cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your sin has made a separation between you and your God so that he cannot hear. All sin leads to broken fellowship. That's why it's so horrible. And therefore, uh, when Christ took on him, what he took on on the cross is not just the sins of the world. That would be intense enough. There's actually, I forget the medical term for this, but there's actually a medical phenomena where a person can be under such intense anxiety that they start to sweat blood. And Christ in Gethsemane, as he began to take the sins of the whole world and began to understand the gravity 
of what he was about to accomplish was actually sweating blood, the scripture says. But he took something even more. He took the sin of the whole world. And that's why Isaiah 53, 4, 6, and 10 are slightly different. One says he took the sins. The other says he, he became a guilt offering or a sin offering. He took the sin. Much like the priest would, would put their hands on the scapegoat and transfer the sins and the sin of Israel to the scapegoat and then send him outside the camp. Christ suffered outside the camp on the hill of Golgotha, on the, uh, always on a mountain. See my, store, my uh, teaching called Mountains in Matthew on the podcast. If you haven't got that one down, that's a really important one. So um, he, he takes on himself the, the power of iniquity. And you need that power broken. I need that power broken. And that power can only be broken at the point where you say, not my will, but thy will. Come into my life, thy will be done. I want to become a disciple of you. I want to die to myself and be a follower of you. Now I'm going to jump ahead to the end and come back. back. I'm going to work back and forth and look at point B. Look down in the last verse on the, on the page, bottom of page 2, Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, anytime you see the word anyone or everyone, stop, underline it, highlight it, jump up and down, speak in tongues a while, and think about anyone. Because here is the deception that every person has. Every person glosses over the everyone's and the anyone's as if you're the exception. We all have that problem. But God is no respecter of persons. That means you are everyone. You are anyone. Anyone who d does my will. Anyone. God, in 1 Corinthians 12, God has given to everyone gifts of the Holy Spirit and gifts of different kinds. Everyone, right? And we all want to have something in our Sinful, dark heart that's, that bounces that everyone off to everyone else, but not to ourselves. You've got to stop at every everyone, every anyone, every every person, and so forth. And you've got to say, Lord, help me know that's me. I am not above your law. And anyone who seeks God, will be, God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Everyone. If you seek him, you'll find him if you seek him with all your heart. You're not, the, you're not an exception to that. Isn't that good? He doesn't say, well, John Bradbury's seeking me with all his heart, but I remember what he did in 1989. <laughs> we probably didn't even be born then or something. <laughs> when were you born? 84, okay. Well, he probably, hopefully it wasn't too serious by 1989. Probably was, though. We're, just, we're sinners from conception, aren't we? Uh, Psalm 32. In sin thou hast conceived. You know, I remember that 1994 episode with the football and the kid, he threw it and hit him in the head or whatever. You know, you know that's, we think like that. But God, whoever comes to God must believe that he is Hebrews eleven six, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Whoever, anyone, 
everyone. That's me. That's you. Fill in your name. Whoever comes to God must believe that, he's, that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who speak him. That's for Roy Hall. Eric, put your name in there. That's huge. So Jesus says, if anyone, fill in your name, wishes to come to me, he must. It's a physical, chemical, biological, spiritual law. It's deeper than the law of gravity. It's immutable. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Whoever, anyone, whoever, circle the whoever's, wishes to save my, his life, put in my life, he'll lose it. That's a promise. Every promise in the book is yours. <laughs> in anyone, everyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. The source of your problems is all those things you're still trying to hold on to. Of your life and how you want to do it and how you want it to be. That's what's killing you. You know, much like the, there's a kind of monkey that they harvest. They were very popular for pets back in the 1800s and so forth. And they would put a jar with a fruit in it. And they would make the neck of the jar just so that when the monkeys in India put their hand in the jar, they couldn't get their hand back out of the jar while it still held the fruit. And they wouldn't give up the fruit. They could have let go of the fruit at any time and pulled their hand out. But they, they would keep their hand on the fruit because they wanted that fruit so bad that they would just come and harvest them because they couldn't run around with this heavy jar on their hand. That's how your sin is. It's exactly that. It's killing you, Smalls. <laughs> it's killing you, Smalls. Give it up. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit of a man if he gains the whole world? You, you want some worldly thing? You want wealth, fame, spouse, whatever? and you want to do it your way, it'll kill you. You'll forfeit your soul. Or what can a man exchange in exchange for his soul? Many people are willing to give up their whole life for some pet sin. Uh, if you've never read C.S. Lewis's uh, book called um, I had, The Great Divorce, you know, and he's got, the guy has the little lizard on his shoulder that's like his favorite pet little sin. Many of us are perishing because we have some idol in our life that we want this or that, and we want it our way at our timing. Wow. It will bite you badly. All right, back to the, jump up to four. I'm working back and forth because I really want to make sure I get this point in. Alienation from mankind. Do you know with, with the alienation from God began alienation from mankind? The man and wife were, before their sin, were naked and not ashamed. After that, they tried to hide their nakedness, right? Cain killed Abel when there was 
four, maybe seven or eight. Maybe by that time there were other, but there certainly wasn't overpopulation. Like people, you know, that's the theory for why we have so many murders in our cities. (laughs) That was Cain's problem, overpopulation. (laughs) He'd never been to Iowa. You think we're overpopulation, drive through Iowa sometime. Especially in the middle of the like July or August when the corn's high, (laughs) like you go for like twenty miles before you see a house, you know, because you just see cornfields and so. He said, "Man, we're overpopulated." Um, Maybe with corn. (laughs) After the fall, you know. Christ said, I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to God. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he likes him. My, have, you, have you struggled with, with rejection, with insecurity, with what pe- the fear of man? Take it to the cross. That's the solution. Get, ask God to set you free from the fear of man. Galatians 1.10, if I was still trying to please men, I could not, cannot be, it's, it's immutable. You cannot be a bondservant of Christ if you're still afraid of what people think of you. Period. Get set free from that. Best comp, my boss called me into my, at the office one day back in the mid-90s, and he said, Greg, the problem with you is you don't care what anybody thinks of you. And I go, Wow, I wish that were true, but I, God's helped me with that. Thanks, but thank you very much. <laughs> uh, not the answer he was looking for. But uh, <laughs> surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken of God, smitten and afflicted. Uh, alienation from ourselves, right? Who were, who's like, every one of us has experienced that. The very things I, I don't understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, right? Who, anybody been there? I, we've all lived in that verse, right? Uh, in, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bears witness, and so forth. Sickness, sicknesses. That could be two points if we wanted. Poverty. Uh, now, I'm not a prosperity gospel guy, but outside of Christ is a culture of poverty, Period. Even people who have great material wealth are really poor. And Paul tells the Corinthians they become wealthy in Christ. Now, I'm all for if God blesses you vocationally and increases your income, there's so much that can be done for the kingdom, but not if it has you. And finally, death. Because this is really important to see. 1 Corinthians 15, the entire chapter is about about the resurrection, about the exchange of death for life. And what happens is God bursts life in your spirit. It begins to work its way through sanctification and maturation into your whole being. You still will sow the outward body like a seed in the earth, and you will be resurrected, provided you don't live to the second coming of Christ. And, um, but eternal life is now. You know, lots of people who think I'm going to go to heaven, I always say, you probably wouldn't like it in heaven. You don't seem to like it now. This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Life, eternal life is, is when your spirit is quickened. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He made you alive. 
He died. His spirit was cut off from God, which is spiritual death, in order that your spirit might be united again to God. And eternal life is something you're to enjoy today. Today is the day of salvation. John 5, 25 through 27, Jesus is later in verse 28 through 30, he talks about the resurrection from the dead. But in 25 through 27, he's talking about spiritual life. And he says a time is coming and already exists when the dead, and he's talking about those who are outside of fellowship with God, will hear my voice and those who hear will live. One of the reasons I talk all the time to people um, about... Um, about uh, do you sense the presence of God? Because if you don't, there's, that's, it's, that's really problematic. Really problematic. Do you hear the Lord's voice clearly? I would encourage you to seek an encounter with the Holy Spirit. You call being baptized in the Spirit. Seek, seek a, a relationship with God's Word deep enough that you hear the voice of God every day. All the time. Where the Holy Spirit gives you insight in various situations. That you feel the flow of God's power going out of you. When you speak. And when you do whatever you're called to do. That I was always very anointed by the Holy Spirit when I was in sales. And I couldn't have made the sales without the power of the Holy Spirit showing me what to ask the person, what to listen to, and what to say, and how to say it. Believe me, if God has called you into sales, God has called you to do that under the power of the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit, having spiritual insights all the time. If God has called you to fix computers, God wants to add to all the knowledge and experience, he wants to add quickenings of the Holy Spirit right in the middle of what you're doing so you go, oh, oh, this is what I need to do. He'll do that in the nurses, doctors, engineers. God wants you to hear the voice of God and sense the power and direction of the Spirit. Now, I got a couple minutes. So, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 13 through 21 is about this exchange. And, and what I'm saying is, has this happened to you? In fact, I'm always know, never mind. Uh, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Is, is, have you experienced that the love of Christ constrains you? Are there times where you said, I should do this, but you no, know, God wants me to be in Friday Night Fellowship, or God wants me to get off Facebook and get into my Bible. God wants me to get to work 15 minutes early. God, you know, the love of Christ constrains you. Having, has the love of Christ constrained your appetites? Are you really his disciple? Has it constrained your appetite for sleep, for food, the desire to, to take vengeance instead of being quick to forgive? Are you really his disciple? Therefore, he died for all, 
so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Is that, care, is that how your life would be described? I encourage you to highlight that verse. Come before the throne of grace and say, make this verse real in my life, God, that, that I might not long, any longer live for myself, but for you. He made him who never experienced sin to be sin on our behalf. Are, are you an ambassador for Christ? Are you bringing about the ministry of reconciliation? Are you inconveniencing your apartment, your house, your schedule, and so forth for chances to reach the lost? Are you? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, Perseverance of the saints. I had an encounter recently and, and, and with someone who believes the modern idea called eternal security who said, well, do you believe in eternal security? And I wouldn't answer his question because uh, I do believe in it. But from the perspective of the apostles, the, per the perseverance of the saints, in the sense that those who God elects and God chooses uh, he will cause them to persevere. But if there's really been a, a salvation, then there's more than you're hoping for forgiveness in the end, but you're just going to continue to be your rebellious, arrogant, self-centered self. If there's never been any conviction of sin, any repentance, any desire to be like Christ, any desire to follow him fully, to become un... And, and that has to express itself in, in submission to his word, in submission to a spirit and submission to a local body of Christians, if that hasn't happened, there really isn't a true conversion. And I would not want to give you some false security if you're not truly converted. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Do you not know that Christ is in you unless you fail the test? That's why we have uh, a teaching called the five vital signs of life. If you're going to be uh, lead someone to Christ, if you don't know those five vital signs of life by now by heart, with at least one scripture to go with each one of them, shame on you. We've taught them 150 times since we started this church. We do it in every Bible study we have one-on-one. -on -one. They are for you, so you cannot try to... Read the word more or witness more, but so that you can see if, those, if these five vital signs of life are lacking, go back to the gospel. It's kind of like that, all, that step, you know, that holy thing where there's two, two steps. Uh, the first step is the boss is always right. Step number two, if you think the boss is wrong, refer back to step number one. <laughs> you know, uh, you know if, if, you, if you don't see the five vital signs of life, actually growing in your life, then go back to the gospel. The gospel is not for a one-time sinner's prayer. The gospel is for life. Amen.